0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And finally, Wade, we have a music
1: intro that is suitably dramatic for a podcast of our stature.
0: You know, Kevin, I love the smell of new movies in the morning.
1: I love them too. I love it a lot more than Napalm, and that is as far as the comparisons between us and Apocalypse Now are going
0: to go in this episode. Listeners, we're going to be reviewing the new Spike Lee film, debuting on Netflix, The 5 Bloods. We're also
1: going to be taking a look at something uh, much more low-key with our review of the new Judd Apatow movie. He teamed up with Pete Davidson to produce The King of Staten Island,
0: and we're going to be taking a look at that today. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 252 of Seeing and Believing, outro epic music. Ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them, too? Yeah. Uh, Dad come to you at night, huh? Storm and Mom come to me damn near every night. Now he talk to you like he talk to me. Come on. come on. I don't think so. Come on. This up. Get in there, David. Get in there. Put your fist up, David. Come on. Go on YouTube there. Go ahead. Fist up, man. Come on, Paul. Let's. Listeners, we are here with episode 252 of Seeing and Believing. And, Kevin, I am so excited. I mentioned this in the introduction. But we get some pretty formidable releases here this week in a season that's been understandably pretty bare for movies.
1: Yeah, it's they're not exactly what you would call action blockbuster fare, but they definitely are from names and filmmakers and actors that are big enough to seem suitably outsized for
0: the summer movie season. Yes, well listeners, this week's episode, it does begin with our discussion of 2020's probably biggest release so far, Spike Lee's De Five Bloods. Set in present-day Vietnam, De Five Bloods follows four African-American veterans who return to the site of America's disastrous war in order to locate the remains of their fallen squad leader, played by Chadwick Boseman, as well as a treasure trove they buried nearly half a century ago. Starring Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Spike Lee weaves together a tale of adventure, madness, trauma, and American history. Kevin, we both liked Lee's previous film, The Black Klansman, and it seems like now is the perfect time for another Spike Lee joint. My question to get us started, it's just pretty straightforward. Do you feel like The Five Bloods lives up to its near-universal hype, or does it fall somewhere um, shorter?
1: I went into it primed really expecting a, a masterpiece, based on the the buzz that was surrounding it and the, the fact that Spike Lee was coming off of the, the, the success of Black Klansman. It seemed like he was really on a hot streak, so I was really geared up for a... A masterpiece this time, maybe even something that I liked better than Black Klansman, which I did enjoy but didn't quite crack my list of the best films of the year for various reasons. So I was a little bit, I don't know, I was a little bit let down by this film, I guess, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm very bummed out about that because I went in really expecting something great, and what I what I got was, at least in in my opinion, seemed a little bit uneven. And we can kind of get into that a little bit. Because when I say uneven, I don't mean it's bad. I mean that it's got some really high highs, and in my opinion, some some pretty disappointing lows. So that's where I ended up on. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, (laughs) for sure. But uh, I don't know, for me, it felt a little bit disappointing. And that might be the fault of the hype more than the fault of the film itself i'm curious to know your thoughts though
0: well i mean i mentioned hype for a reason because this is one of those movies that i think every cinephile was was looking forward to just because of the year and because of the moment in time and then just because it's a spike lee picture and the story is it's intriguing it's fascinating i think the film is it's passionate i think it's prophetic and it doesn't necessarily revise history, as it rightly interprets history. But as much as there is to commend about the movie, uh, I was frustrated by a great deal of the of the film, uh, the scattered plot, uh, some of the character choices, even moments when the audience is required to suspend belief. It just feels it feels kind of odd. And I wonder if it's because the script, which was originally penned by Danny Bilson and Paul Demio in 2013 and was rewritten by Kevin Wilmot, was was sort of a hodgepodge put together. And so we, we get one vision and we get another vision and they they don't fully, gel and so I think that's where the weakness of the film lies it just the the plot itself and yeah I was <laughs> I was I was disappointed too Kevin.
1: yeah I don't know I, I don't know what to attribute it to because I'm not even sure uh, how much of where where we can speculate on where where the unevenness comes from I guess I do think that it's definitely possible that, Lee had a had a very specific vision for uh, what he wanted to do with this film that resulted in um, some moments that are very powerful for how they do speak directly to contemporary concerns about race and justice and warfare. Um, but it did seem like those parts kind of rubbed up uneasily against where it connected to the more conventional uh, parts of, of the film, if, if that makes sense. This of course is a Lee film. So he does do a lot, especially in these, these later films of his, of really playing around with, um, the intersection of the film's reality, where we are seeing actors playing characters on screen and actual archival footage or archival photography that are sort of spliced into the film to remind us that uh, essentially Lee doesn't necessarily want us to distinguish between, okay, we're just watching a story and we're going to, you know, enjoy ourselves with it. And then kind of the movie ends and we return to the real world. Lee is really trying to blur the line between the, the, the act of watching the film and the act of living in our world. And I think that's a really interesting territory for his films to occupy. I think for me, the the problem comes when he doesn't really trust how he does that with image and editing, and where the the script kind of tries to really put a, a button on a lot of these ideas that he is dealing with. So for an example, there's a scene where the four main characters, the, these ex-GIs, are walking down a street in modern-day Saigon. They're uh, accompanied by their Vietnamese guide, and they've are kind of they they've just exited a nightclub, and they're kind of just hanging out. And then in the middle of this, this conversation, they kind of almost stop, and they discuss uh, exactly what uh, certain... Um, What a what a certain famous black GI, uh, what his experiences were while he was overseas on tour on his tour of duty in Vietnam, and it's it's interesting. Like it's interesting to have that information, and Spike Lee accompanies this with a um, by intercutting uh, actual images of this black soldier while they're talking about it. And that's, that's interesting as far as it goes. I think the writing, though, just it really feels flatly expository. And it comes across, at least for me, as if Lee's not really trusting in uh, the editing and the, the overall shape of the film, really bringing home these themes. And he really wants to just state them explicitly. And I think that that Reads almost as a loss of nerve, and it's something that the film ultimately didn't really need, in my opinion.
0: You know, I, I don't mind some of this in-your-face sermonizing. I, I think it's usually a negative trait in, in most films, but it works okay here for me. What, what really frustrates me about this movie is you do have this, this passion, and I mentioned prophecy, but it bounces between that and formulaic. And there were, some, there were some shootouts in this film, especially this kind of big shootout at the end, that weren't just oddly placed and oddly staged for this movie. They would have been odd or weak in really any movie. And there's, there's one scene where a character who is less nimble than everyone in a gunfight wearing a white suit, stands out like a sore thumb, somehow he manages to survive this entire deal and and just wreak havoc. And it's moments like that when it it feels like it's a passion project placed on top of a a a weak mainstream movie. And that's where the problem is for me. I I enjoy some of Spike Lee's just—I mentioned this before—in-your-face messaging, and I, I think that some of that just works extremely well. And, and what he's trying to do is he's, he's telling this, of course, fictional story, and he's superimposing these real-life characters in real-life events, almost as if those characters— are bordering the edges of the project. They are, they are these ghosts that influenced this season in American life and this, this war and the, the plight of these individuals. This is almost a, a ghost film, a horror film. There's one scene where the characters are walking across a field and we get them sort of walking towards the camera, and there's this cross dissolve, and they're suddenly further along, and it does feel, for a moment, that these individuals are translucent. We also have this playing with time. So the characters, you know, this is this is set in present day Vietnam, and you mentioned they go to Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City, and... These individuals should be somewhere around 70 years old. They Most of them look a little bit younger than that. They meet characters that look too young to have known them during the Vietnam War. One individual has a daughter that, from what I understand, was conceived during the Vietnam War, but she's too young. Uh, the Older actors play themselves in the flashback scenes, and there's no there's no makeup done, and and so Spike Lee he's playing with memory and he's playing with time, and uh, I think for some people it might be confusing, but but I, I understand what he's doing, and I I do I do appreciate all of that, and I just you know wish wish that the plot would have lived up to some of these re- I think really grand and and and. I think pretty bold decisions throughout the movie.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, things about this film that make it read as more or less a, a war a war movie. the The soundtrack is very martial, you know, the the, the drums and the the horns that we've heard in any number of war yeah. movies previously. And of course, you you mentioned the the shoot shootouts. There's a an early scene that's. One of these flashback scenes where we see uh, this this squad of five men kind of uh, going on this mission uh, together and encountering resistance, and so there's a, a firefight that takes place. And it does seem to me almost it, it seems like the the war movie elements of this film are just they're much less interesting than the other elements of of the picture. And so for me, it just it seems a little bit. Disappointing that the the film goes in that direction as much as it does, rather than sticking with some of its strengths. And maybe this is a good time for us to talk about one of the lead actors, Delroy Lindo, mm-hmm. in the role of Paul. Uh, Lindo is fabulous in this film. He's he just is. utterly fantastic. And uh, of course, in, in this film, Paul is is characterized as a you know one one of the squad. He's struggling a lot with. PTSD, he has a, a very um, uh, difficult, fraught relationship with his son, played by uh, the last black man in San Francisco's Jonathan Majors as David, uh, just a, another really good role. Uh, but Paul is he, he's struggling with all these things, and he also, it, we come to learn, uh, is a diehard trump supporter he even like spends half the movie wearing a a red maga hat Mm -hmm. uh as they're in the jungle searching for this treasure and lee does a does a lot with this character that's that's very interesting and lindo as well in really suggesting that this isn't a film that's going to cater towards um popular or stereotypical uh visions of what a black man is supposed to be or what a black veteran is supposed to be. And over the course of the film, we watch Paul really just be sketched out as a, a very complex, very interesting character who has so much fighting within him and so much, at least in, in in, I think, the way that Lee wants us to interpret his character, he's dealt with so much injustice and anger at... Uh, race relations in America for so long, and it's kept inside. It's combined with his wartime experiences in a way that really curdles and turns into something, something very toxic, and also something very sad. And I don't know. I, I loved him, and I would have watched an entire film that was just about him being in in Vietnam by himself, not deal, not necessarily dealing with all these myriad other subplots, but just trying to come to terms with who he is. And what has happened to him and how that should play out in his life going
0: forward. Yeah, And he makes a number of radical decisions throughout the film. And I think most of those work because we understand or we have a glimpse of the trauma that this character has experienced. Not just in the war, but as a black man trying to navigate America. And we, we get this incredible, I think one of my favorite sequences in the film, is when the, this group of soldiers, and this is a flashback, so this is during the Vietnam War, they're listening to the radio, and a propaganda message comes on, and it's addressed to, uh, and she, she quotes, she says, the black GIs. And... Everything that is said in this message is true. How the country has let these individuals down, has pushed them to fight their war, and yet they don't welcome them back home as heroes. I mean, it's a great sequence because you think, okay, this is the, the quote-unquote enemy talking here, and they're going to try to lie and do whatever they can to get soldiers to turn their backs on America and their country and to fight against their their you know their fellow soldiers but everything is true and i think moments like that are just fantastic because you feel the weight of these characters and of course you know the symbolism is is almost on the nose at times you know these these people never left vietnam right and so they they come back here but it's as if they've been here kind of wandering around in the jungle, like they are doing currently, they're they're searching for something, and they're searching for closure, and they're searching for something that will take their problems away. And a uh, part of that does involve uh, this this gold. Now, all that stuff is really wonderful, and it and it, it just it, some of those scenes are just real mesmerizing. Uh, but then you get characters who find gold in kind of odd places. Uh, I think. A lot of this crew at the very beginning, when they meet each other, it's like, okay, they're, you know, they have this commonality. They fought together, but they're all very different people. They've grown since the war, Uh, they've changed since the war. And yet, with the exception of Paul's character and that great performance that you mentioned, the other men in the Bloods, they they sort of just get absorbed into the collective, which is disappointing because at the beginning of the movie, we also get this. Subplot with Otis, who's played by Clark Peters. He does a very fan- very good job, and he meets up with a woman that he knew during the war. And I'm interested in hearing more about his story and the development in his story. And it kind of gets lost. There's another character who makes this uh, sort of revelation to the group. He makes a confession to the group, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I okay, I forgot about that. And I, I think the story loses some of those touches throughout this, uh, and and that's you know definitely one of the weaknesses uh, throughout this film.
1: Yeah, it, I don't know. It's I I don't know that I had as big of a problem with with some of the things that you mentioned as as you did. You are right that it does seem like Lee, or at least maybe the screenplay is. Maybe spends more uh lavishes more attention on some members of the bloods rather than others I think Paul and Otis are kind of the two the the two that really seem to have a lot there there's a lot invested into shading out their characters and building them out and making them uh, have have more facets I guess than the other members of the bloods and I guess that does that is kind of a shame just because there's these other possibilities represented by these other characters, but we just don't get as much of them. One of the things that, one of the films that I thought of while watching this film was actually, uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre that, uh, Humphrey Bogart film about a, a trio of men who are, you know, off prospecting for gold. And over time, the prospect of this great wealth causes their alliances to shift and eventually causes them all to, to turn on each other and i think one of the strengths of that film is just how how simple and streamlined it is right like there there doesn't seem to be almost like a wasted minute in that film because it's all kind of focused in on the the triangle of these three men how their relationships uh, are formed over the course of the film how their relationships shift and change over the course of the film and how the changes that we do witness are all traceable back to kind of this gold, which is almost... The gold isn't the point. The The gold is just sort of this catalyst for creating these changes. And it seems like Lee really is just so ambitious with what he's trying to do with everything else that the lines connecting all these characters get a little bit fuzzier. And I think in the end, it's it's a little bit more complicated than, than it should be. There's an entire subplot with... Uh, a trio of uh, French uh, aid workers who are there to demine all of the uh, landmines that are still remaining in Vietnam after the American War, as they call it, and that they don't really seem to serve a purpose in the narrative, which is a shame because they there's a lot of the of the movie devoted to at least introducing them and having them play some sort of role. And they're not really interesting except as a vehicle for maybe highlighting one aspect of the war that doesn't get talked about enough, which is the, the remaining landmines and unexploded ordnance that's still in the country. That's uh, an issue that's important. It's a social justice issue for this particular movie. It does seem to distract from what, we as the audience are the most interested in which is exploring the effects of the conflict on the lives of these four men
0: yeah it, it's kind of a strange it's a strange subplot and the characters make strange choices and I think the exploration is is important here and you know my, my grandfather fought in Vietnam he, he experienced side effects of Agent Orange and so this is this is a war that is—it's it, very fascinating to me to see the effects that it has on people firsthand and to see how that is explored because in in my experience, a lot of people that fought in Vietnam don't like to talk about what happened over there, uh, at least— um, it's, it's, if it is done, it's done in sort of vague generalities. And so a movie like this, trying to, to get into that headspace, and I was also looking for more in the flashbacks. I think they kind of peter out. And we, we do get this sort of fascinating take on Chadwick Boseman's character. So he is the commander who perished during the war, Norman, And they're going back to find his remains. All of that, finding the gold, finding him, it's all really easy. And and maybe maybe Spike Lee just isn't super concerned about that. But it does take away from some of the tension. And we do get to kind of figure out how he died. We learn a little bit more about him. And he becomes almost this, this Christ figure. And I wanted to mention this because towards the latter half of the movie... I mean, even throughout, but definitely in the latter half of the movie, we get a number of biblical references. So Paul's character, he quotes Psalm twenty-three as he's sort of going off in the woods. Oh, that's such a heartbreaker of a scene it, too. It's a heartbreaker of a scene because he's he's yearning yearning for that good shepherd. Uh, he talks about uh, Jesus uh, forgiving him of his sins. He talks about how God is is love, how Jesus is his friend. And it, it feels like Spike Lee is firmly planting equality within a religious and even a Christian context. So when we learn about Martin Luther King Jr., we learn that his pursuit of equality is firmly attached to the scriptures. And this movie seems to connect it to that, that this yearning for equality uh, occurs within or is rooted in this Christian context. Uh, so it's kind of a fascinating uh, look here at, towards the end of the movie. Yeah, that scene,
1: uh, so there, that scene where, uh, towards the end of the film, where Bozeman's Norman uh, shows up. Uh, kind of in a vision to one of the characters. And they they embrace, and a sort of reconciliation or forgiveness is offered there. Uh, is just, I, that's an absolutely, it's a beautiful scene. And it, it made me think a little bit of the way that Fani is portrayed in some scenes in uh, the the film, if Beale Street could talk, you know that that film that kind of didn't get as much love as maybe I expected it to. But there's there's a scene uh, where uh, Fonny's kind of the the uh, the male lead of that film. He's uh, he's black, and we get a shot of him kind of carving something uh, like a carpenter, and it's just shot in this really warm light. Um, almost placing him in this almost saintly celestial glow. And it's drawing a parallel between the way that Fanny suffers and sort of the way Christ suffers and the way that they're both carpenters. And I thought of that scene from If Buell Street Could Talk in this reconciliation with this vision of Norman because it does feel like there's just this deep hunger in, in all of the, the four bloods that we watch over the course of the film where they just, they, they hunger for justice. There, there's talk of reparations. They're going after this gold essentially as a way to sort of take back uh, something for black people that the, the United States has never stopped taking from them since its very inception, right? And so there's this almost social justice element to their hunt for this treasure and in this final scene with norman you get a sense that there's there's a balm on that on that anger and that that cry for justice that that is at least temporarily placed on this other character's heart who receives that embrace and i think that i this is a film that get only gets stronger as it goes along and i think it's because of scenes like that scenes where Lindos Paul essentially looks straight down the barrel of the camera and talks to us in the audience and says, essentially, you're not going to cheat me again. I'm going to take what what is mine. And then he gives the Black Power salute. And he's a very complex, difficult character, but you really understand him in that moment. And Moments like that and this reconciliation scene are just so galvanizing and re- really represent the best of what Lee is doing with this film.
0: Yeah, and, and you learn that one of the characters is suffering from a disease that will probably kill him. And he says, I will choose when and how I die. And this character wants agency. It... it control at at, at least at the very least to say hey this is this is how I'm gonna go and I think those are powerful scenes Uh, there's another scene where one character is bitten by the snake and there seems to be a, a, a good deal of Old Testament imagery that equates fallenness to to everyone even people who are oppressed and this is this is a great example of just Spike Lee not being placed in a particular box, not placing himself in a box, not allowing himself to be placed in a box, but making this passionate and prophetic cry. But then, you know, you follow it up with this sort of what feels like a lazy action scene, and we get kind of plotty, and I mentioned it before, formulaic, and, and that is the frustrating aspect of the movie and you you get the sense that hey there's this really fantastic great movie here we just gotta we gotta pick through some of this debris in order in order to get to it
1: yeah and that's kind of what i what i mean when when i talk about this film feeling uneven is it just has such high highs and then to kind of have have some disappointing stumbles after that is I mean, it, it's a disappointment. There's no other way to put it. I think for me, overall, the the um, the highs kind of make up for those stumbles a little bit. But yeah, it's unfortunately, I'm. It might this film might end up in kind of the same category as Black Klansman, where I really like and even love a lot of what it's doing. But just uh, I'm not. I wasn't really vibing with some of its rhythms and and creative choices.
0: Listeners, that is our review of DeFive Bloods. It's currently streaming on Netflix. If you've seen the movie and you have some thoughts, make sure to tweet us at CBeliefPod at C-Belief, POD, You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We would love to hear what you have to say about the movie and we might even read some of those thoughts on our next episode. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We're going to be reviewing the Judd Apatow the King of Stanton Island. We'll be right back. That song was From My Heart by C. Shry. We want to take a moment and thank everyone who supports us via our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you keep the show going. We have a number of different donation levels on Patreon. And one of our favorites is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. Kevin, I I wanted to ask you that question today. Five bloods, five dollars, what could you buy for five bucks?
1: Uh, five-flavored peanut butter. So if you you like peanut butter, okay, great, but you know what's better than peanut butter is peanut butter with lots of multiple flavors just swirled into it, sort of like a Neapolitan ice cream, but for your PB&J. Okay.
0: I love love peanut butter. Uh, Sometimes I just eat peanut butter straight, and whenever I make oatmeal, I eat oatmeal almost every morning for breakfast, and I put... Peanut butter in my oatmeal. I, mm. I think it's fantastic. I, I don't know if I can endorse your life choices here, Wade. <laughs> <laughs> you need you know, I need the extra protein and but I always say if you want the peanut butter, you gotta earn it. So you gotta do your reps in the morning, you gotta run your miles, and then you get the peanut butter in your oatmeal. <laughs>
1: I I think I'm going to have to find a different incentive for my own exercise regimen
0: because I don't think that's going to really be doing it for me. (laughs) Listeners, you can get flavored peanut butter for five bucks or you can support us on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Kevin, we also have something uh, that I think has a great impact on the show. We put it out there this last week and it is a survey to help us really get to know our listeners a little bit better and for them to provide feedback on what they like about the show.
1: Yeah, so of course, you know, supporting us financially is a huge help. Uh, supporting us by sharing the show is a huge help by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Those are all great, but maybe more important than any of those is really just making sure that you. Uh, let your, your voice be heard as far as like what we do with the show going forward. We want to make sure that what we're putting out every week is something that our listeners really like, that we're, we're giving them more of what they like and, uh, you know, really just finding the the niche for the show where we really can reach uh, as uh, broad of an audience as possible doing what we love and what our listeners love. So definitely uh, head on over to our Twitter account where we've, we've linked to that survey. I'll also drop a link to that survey in the notes for this week's episode. It's just a quick one-page Google Doc. It'll take you five minutes, and it's just really valuable to us. So we definitely appreciate all of your help in uh, providing that info.
0: I love Staten Island. It's amazing. And people are gonna see it soon, trust me. Well, if you love it so much, why don't you let me tattoo it on you? No, I'm not gonna let you tattoo me again. Fine. Well, I need somebody to tattoo. I'm, I'm running out of... Come on, Rich, what about you, man? Don't even look at me, dude. Why? Your work is mad inconsistent. Obama ain't right. I got the eyes wrong, okay? He's not right. All right, man, this has hurt me. All right, I don't have any black friends anymore. I can't go to the barbershop no more. You got Obama wrong. Ain't nothing worse than that. What you, Igor? You want a dragon or something? Oh, I love your tattoos. My brother, it's a spitting image. Yeah. It's my favorite. It's one no, 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 no. This is my favorite. Oh, you
1: killed that. Yeah, I really Just, worked hard on the eyes. Welcome back to the second half of our show, listeners, where we're going to be talking about a film that, at least for me, is more immediately relatable than the experiences of Vietnam G.I.s I... Sadly, can't claim that I know a whole lot about what it's like to live through combat as uh, as a GI. But I do know what it's like to be a twenty-something underemployed white slacker. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to uh, plumbing my own personal experience for this
0: next uh, this next review. Yeah. Well, I I don't have any tattoos, so I am limited on how close I can get to Pete Davidson. That, I don't know if that, that'll pose a problem or not.
1: Well, I, I don't think it'll pose much of a problem. I, too, have not set ink to my my perfect complexion, but uh, at least you <laughs> could yeah. also say that you weren't planning on putting together a tattoo restaurant. So yes. you know, there's You got that in your favor. Yes. Uh, listeners... <laughs> The King of Staten Island's basic plot outline will be familiar to anyone who is familiar with the films of Judd Apatow. A boy realizes he is living in a state of perpetual adolescence and begins the journey to grow out of it. Apatow has made a lot of these films over the years, whether he's been directing or acting in a producer role, but the, the basic plot outlines of a lot of these films are the same, from the high schoolers of Superbad bad, to Steve Carell's eponymous role in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. These are characters who are boys, no matter how old they are. In the case of this latest film, that boy is the mid-twenties Scott, played by Pete Davidson. This film is purportedly based on Davidson's own personal experiences and follows Scott as he struggles, or not, to find a direction for his life, and copes, or not, with losing his father to a firefighting accident when he was young. Some standard Apotovian tropes apply. Lots of banter. Uh, a questionable group of friends who may or may not be helping Scott uh, realize his his dreams in a in a healthy way. But the specifics are very much unique to this film and to Davidson's experiences. Wade, my question for you to get us started is pretty simple. You've seen a lot of Apatow films over the course of your life. (laughs) How does this film compare to those? Do you find that it uh, occupies a familiar place in his filmography, or do you think that this kind of does some some new things and goes to some new places?
0: Yeah, so I've seen a, a, a ton of films that he's produced or executive produced, I think I've talked about Freaks and Geeks. I'm a fan of Freaks and Geeks. I know he's di- he directed a handful of uh, yes. episodes, and I think he was an executive producer. I think that show's fantastic. I- I'm a little light on some of the films that he's directed, and I haven't been a huge fan of those movies. So I- I've never been a fan of The 40 Year Old Virgin, and I don't know if I finished Knocked Up, but I've watched enough of it. I just, this sort of crass comedy <sighs> whole subgenre. Is usually not my not my style. And so I came into this movie and it's almost the opposite of of De Five Bloods, in that I didn't have very many expectations uh, for the film, and yet I, I found it to be a de- deceptively mature tale that examines Trauma, fatherhood, and prolonged adolescence. I I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, and part of that is because of the lower expectations. But it's a movie that is 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 funny. It does have that. It does have that raunchy sort of crass humor. Uh, some of that doesn't really work for me. But it's about growing up. It's about responsibility, and it's about being being stuck. And feeling stuck and not really knowing where to go. And I, I think in that sense, uh, thematically, the film uh, hits hits its core message pretty strong.
1: You know, it, it's really interesting that we seem to be almost the inverse of each other in in our approach to... Uh, Apatow in this latest film, so I've, I've liked Apatow's previous films, I, I like the 40-year-old version, I liked Knocked Up quite a bit uh, I even even though Funny People was you know, overlong and maybe not wholly successful, I did appreciate a lot of what it was doing so, you know, I don't know that I would call myself a, a super fan uh, necessarily of Apatow, although I do like a lot of what he has either directed or helped produce um, so I was kind of going to this film thinking like, this will be, you know, kind of a, a bird of the same feather maybe. And I, I have to say, I was very disappointed by the King of Staten Island. Uh, okay. And, and I, 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 don't know if we can speculate, maybe if the fact that you not being a fan of Apetow actually meant that what this film does primed you to like it more, whereas somebody like me who liked his, his past films a little bit more really struggled with it. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But,
0: yeah, I don't know. This is probably my least favorite of his films <laughs> that I've seen. You know, I like this movie when it's not trying too hard to be funny. So it opens with this scene, and Pete Davidson, he's, he's driving, and he's not really paying attention, and he almost gets in a car accident, and he swerves, and as a result, the people behind him get in a car accident. And he just keeps driving, and he, he's, you know, obviously very shaken. And he just says, I- I- I'm sorry. I- I'm sorry. You know, no one's there. No one can hear him. I'm sorry. And it, it, I think it's a funny scene. But it also says something about this character, and, and it, lets him, it lets him let down his guard a bit. And we get a peek inside of his, I don't know, just kind of this fragile self. There's this other scene where these characters are, they are really into minor league baseball. I mean, just really into it. And I think that's, I think it's just hilarious. It's a, Touches like that really do work for me. And I found, too, that a number of conversations in this film are conversations where, we get to read between the lines and truly peek into who these characters are and, and it's these moments where they kind of let their guard down. There's one argument scene and Pete Davidson is arguing with his sister. She's about to go to college. I think she's about to leave the next day or in a couple of days. And it's sort of this frustrating argument. they're not they don't understand each other and yet peeking in, we're able to see, who they are. And we're able to get a, a great image of of loss and and what loss can do at particular moments in time to people. And so Pete, Pete Davidson's character, he lost his dad when he was seven and his sister, who's younger than him, uh, she actually doesn't remember uh, her dad. And so it affects her in a different way. And I, I think throughout the film we get a number of those scenes where where subtly, Apatow gives us a window into the lives of these characters, and he doesn't push them too hard to change. In fact, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish he, I wish he would just get his act together. But it's really hard to do that for some people and because of, of their experiences, and it's also hard to, uh, to care for and to love other people when we find them struggling and when it seems like they can't get out of their own way.
1: Yeah. So I, I do think that you, you've hit on something that is maybe a, a central theme in most Apatow films, which is the concept of change. Is it is it possible for a person to change? Why do people change? And how does that change often take place? So the 40-year-old virgin is a, about a character who is kind of Always struggled to to be intimate with with people, not just sexually, but just in terms of really opening up to them and sharing with them in a, in a meaningful way. So when we meet him at forty years old, he's kind of you know he's living in this world where he lives by himself and he's got his video games and his collector's items, and it's very comfortable and it's nice, but not any there. There's nobody who really. Knows him. Like, he doesn't really let anybody into that world. It's just he's got his possessions and his things, and he just sort of enjoys himself. By himself and knocked up. You've got somebody who's a lot like uh, Pete Davidson's character Scott in this film. Seth Rogen's character is this slacker. He doesn't really have any direction in his life. He's got this this harebrained scheme for a a startup company that he wants to get going, but he never really finds the impetus to do it. And that changes when he uh, you know gets a one night stand, pregnant, and kind of has to figure out. Okay, well. I have responsibilities now. How do I meet those? Uh, funny Peoples about Adam Sandler's character, kind of looking at the the havoc that a certain lifestyle has wrecked on uh, the people around him and con- kind of contemplating, well, what do I do now? That's all really interesting. I think my problem with The King of Staten Island is it never really goes as deep into what the change is like for for Scott. He doesn't really seem to... there. There's not really a moment in this film I can pinpoint where, where we're really let into Scott's inner psyche and kind of like understand well, why would he want to change? You know, what, what is it like for him to change, not just his behavior, but also his perspective on life and, and even his heart? And I, I just don't see a lot of that reflectiveness in The King of Staten Island. It just seems sort of like he... Decides to change, and then over the course of a montage, he kind of does, and that doesn't—that I didn't find that very satisfying.
0: Well, I, I think throughout the film, you have a character kind of he, he just feels kind of pulled along, and he's told to do this or he's told to do that. He has a dream, and uh, his dream is to open a you know a tattoo parlor restaurant, and but he doesn't really even do much about that, and. He's you know other people get him jobs and he doesn't do a lot of reflecting on his life And so as I'm watching I kind of have this different reaction in that This is a character who can't stand to reflect on What's going on around him because it's too painful because if he does that he has to fess up to a number of different mistakes And it's not until he feels known or seen, it's not until he finds mentors that he really is kind of able to do that, and he almost does that physically. He does that, you know, in order for him to change, it's almost this physical working out, uh, this physical discipline, and I, I think that's kind of this fascinating look at what it means to try to change and how we can even change or even hopefully start to change even though we we don't always know what's wrong, and during the beginning of the film, he's talking to someone who's kind of his secret girlfriend, and uh, she says you know, he he says that that he's messed up in the head, and that's really all he can say is he's just he just feels messed up, and a lot of it stems from his personal experience, and I I really haven't seen Pete Davidson in very many things. I've, of course, seen him on SNL, and I know his, his father passed away uh, during 9-11. He was a first responder, a firefighter, and it, it, it really felt like a, a warm, a personal performance here, and, and I like him, and in fact, I think the cast is one of the strongest parts of this movie. Uh, you have uh, Bill Burr, who plays a great uh, firefighter. You have Marissa Tomei who plays Pete Davidson's mom. And she's she's just fantastic here. And that makes up for some of the weaknesses of the movie. And I, I think the movie, just on, you know, from the very beginning, we look at it, it's just, it's too long. There's some subplots. There's one that involves uh, a pharmacy. And it's just odd and kind of strange in the way that Apatow connects uh, he introduces uh, Bill Burr's character is, is a little bit weird. So there are some there are some structural issues here, but I think at the core it is a mature look at what it means to just be at a loss in life and just feel like you're stuck. And, and you have the power to change, but you almost don't realize you have the power to change. And I think that's that's something that a lot of people do experience, and it's it's, it's a really tough rut to get out of.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that the, those elements are kind of there, kind of floating around in the in the film, and you can you can see some of that. You know, as one of these ideas as it kind of floats by you. I for me, I think the problem is it never really coheres. Though I, I watching this film, I don't really think that Apatow does a particularly good job of showing us how Scott gets. From point A to point B, like how did he, how does he become, how how does he go from being a uh, pretty closed off, uh, unambitious guy who just smokes weed constantly and kind of has this this unresolved grief over over his father's death? How does he really go from that to somebody who's kind of decided to to make the change? It's it's sort of he gets kicked out of the house and he has a moment of bonding with Bill Burr's character but I don't I, I guess wherever that point comes where he where he decides to change or when that process is sort of ongoing in him I think that's something that Apatow doesn't evoke as well as he does in 40-year-old virgin or or knocked up. I just, I don't see any of this happening. It does happen. It It, it is evident by the end of the film that Scott has changed and there are reasons for that change, but there's not really any, it doesn't seem like Appetow has really shaped Davidson's performance in a way that really lets the audience in on that change. At least for me, I don't know that I see a transition. It's sort of, it's, it's almost an not a night and day transition, but it's just, I, I want to kind of see more of an incremental step-by-step process because I think that's what what change really is, at least in Apatow films, is you don't have an all-at-once 180 um, and it's not just a, based on a single decision. It's kind of over time, these characters discover in themselves the capacity to change and the desire to change. And I guess The King of Staten Island, I don't really see that. It's obviously there somewhere, but whether it's Davidson's performance or Apatow's directing, it's just never really fully brought to the fore in a way that I found satisfying.
0: Well, I, I think I mean I think you're right. That the change is a number of steps. But but I think I think where I see this film is I see Davidson's character taking the first one or two steps. So to say that he doesn't go from point A to point B, he goes from point A to, to, you know, to point A, B, you know, he's, he's in the middle. And I actually, I, I think that that happens when he begins to, I don't know if you would say make peace with his father's death, but comes to, come to terms with certain aspects of his father's death. And so d- throughout the movie, he says, hey, if you're going to be a firefighter, you shouldn't have a family. You shouldn't have a family because you live a dangerous life. And when he begins to hang out with Bill Burr's character towards the end, he goes on a couple of journeys. And I don't want to go into too much detail because I, I think there's some surprise here. But he does have a sense of closure about his father. And that compels him to do what I think is to take the first step because he hasn't really changed, right? I mean, he has a new mindset, but what is change? Especially in a character like this. Well, you got to decide to make the decision, and that's that's a really big step. But perhaps a bigger step is to actually just live it out. And so he's in the process of saying, okay, I made the decision, I've changed my mind, my mindset, but now I've got to go forward. And so I, I think that's why this film works better for me. Because it understands that change is this really long process. And at the end, Pete Davidson's character is not, you know, this successful married individual with kids. He's maybe a step closer to that, but he, he still has a long way to go.
1: Yeah, I, and and maybe part of this, of my distaste for it is just feeling a little bit like... Like the there there's I, I got a little bit fatigued while watching this movie because I don't I, I don't think that it works entirely as drama um, for for the reasons I've already stated. Um, but I think maybe even even more problematic for me though is the I don't know I don't think it's all that funny and this might be, Uh, Obviously, comedy is subjective, but I'm curious for your take on the comedic elements of this film, since you mentioned that it made you laugh a lot. I I found it to be very comedy light for comedy, and I, I don't know if that's, again, in the performances or just in the way that Apatow shapes them or fails to shape them. I do think that this kind of, this film kind of, it goes for a while and that's been something that maybe apatow's always had kind of a weakness for is not really knowing when to cut a bit of business that he finds amusing, but that just really kind of bloats the running time of his films. But I think that that problem is especially apparent in the King of Staten Island and maybe kept me, Uh, even more arm's length than I would have been otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, I totally get that. I I think there are dull aspects to the movie and just some odd, just as I mentioned, some odd subplots. I I don't quite get those. And In fact, you could cut them out and you just straight cut them out and you're good. I mean, there doesn't need to be any, you know, dialogue change or anything like that. I I think the movie's pretty funny. And like I said, I, I think... I think the aspects of the humor that I do like are not necessarily kind of the dirty, raunchy jokes, but some of those other uh, – some of the other humor, some of the dry humor in this movie and some of the the humor that I actually didn't expect to find in the film. And, you know, one example is just a couple of guys getting just so excited about my minor league baseball. Those aspects I think are uh, – you know, work all right for me.
1: Yeah, I I guess there's there's not really any any accounting for for taste and humor, but I I don't know. It's just maybe I just don't have the the right kind of insight into the, the humor of minor league baseball fandom, or I don't know, even just some of the 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 interplay between. Um, Scott and his friends, which has ordinarily been part of the the strongest part, maybe, of Apatow films, where it's just sort of a bunch of guys hanging out, bantering with each other and making each other laugh. And that's kind of been enjoyable in the past to watch. I guess in this film, I don't know that I really enjoy spending time with a lot of these characters. And and given the fact that a, a lot of their interactions are maybe a little bit more shapeless, that maybe... It accounts for why I couldn't uh, uh, laugh as as much at this film as I did at some of his others
0: well maybe maybe it helps with expectations maybe that's why uh, I appreciate this film uh, a little bit more <laughs> listeners maybe once so. again if you've seen, Uh, The King of Staten Island, make sure to let us know what you think. It is currently available to rent, so you can watch it at home. Uh, Rent it on iTunes and YouTube and wherever you get your films. Make sure to tweet us at Pod or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend this week?
1: I'm going to renew my plug for the uh, Ken Burns documentary, documentary series, The Vietnam War, which uh, you know, originally aired on public television, is currently on Netflix. Um, it's just, if you're familiar at all with Ken Burns documentaries, uh, you know that uh, he's a, a guy who really gives a lot, does a really great job of providing a lot of detail while also keeping the larger picture in view and providing what is often really important in kind of layman's historical studies anyway, which is a sense of perspective. And I think that uh, his series on the Vietnam War really does a great job of giving a good overview of the conflict while also not neglecting the individual stories that give it specificity and really help us understand uh, what it was actually like to live through various facets of the conflict it came to mind for me while i was watching defy bloods mostly because of how lee in that film talks a lot about the the racial disparities in the americans who were serving overseas in that conflict and that's something that i learned for the first time through this ken burns documentary so it's got a lot of really interesting stuff like that and will really even if you think you know the conflict, which I, I kind of thought I did, it, it really deepened my understanding of it so much more.
0: Yeah, I need I need to check that out. I've seen aspects of parts of it. Uh, I have not watched the whole thing, so I, I definitely need to to watch that. And you know, Ken Burns' stuff is is just it's usually so good, uh, and you can't you can't pass it up. I am going to recommend a documentary. It is currently streaming on Hulu. It came out earlier this year. It's Spaceship Earth. It's directed by Matt Wolf, and it does not refer to the Walt Disney World Epcot ride. Rather, in 1991, a group of people built what they called Biosphere 2, uh, a biosphere filled with uh, a artificial jungle and coral reef and uh, lodging, and... A number of people were placed in this. It was a two-year experiment, and the goal was to replicate Earth's ecosystem. So if we ever went to Mars or another planet, uh, we could sustain life within a biosphere. Now, they called it Biosphere 2 because Earth is, of course, uh, Biosphere 1. It's not a documentary that's going to blow you away. It's a documentary that's interesting and that seems to uh, seems to probe exploration and even the idea of of science what fuels science while at the same time is there a way for pseudoscience to overrun or overshadow in some people's mind a uh, high quality uh, peer-reviewed science, so it's one of those documentaries that I found just pretty interesting. Like I said, it's it's not going to uh, it's not going to blow you away, uh, but it is a, a fascinating look at a group of people who did something that was at once extraordinary and uh, also not very wise. Uh, so that's uh Spaceship Earth from Matt Wolf, and like I mentioned, is currently streaming on Hulu. That's a that's a documentary
1: that's been on my two watch list ever since I heard about it, because it sounds like just such a fascinating premise. Um, So I'm looking forward to catching up with it one day, hopefully when it's uh, available uh, for for free streaming on a service that isn't Hulu, since I don't have that anymore. But I definitely have a really high interest in checking that out, and you make it sound good.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's just kind of an interesting watch, and it follows the group that put this together, and they have... Uh, fascinating origins which kind of are almost cult-like so it's it's a it's interesting story listeners we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by our patreon supporters and christinpopculture.com as always we want to hear your thoughts you can also rate and review us on itunes and spotify wherever you get your podcasts that is a huge help and as we mentioned earlier We have a Seeing and Believing listener survey. It's found in the show notes. Please fill that out. Uh, Let us know what you think about the show. We always want to make it better. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later